Section 8 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Tsar Nicholas, Part 1. 1796 to 1855, the Crimean War. For centuries before the Russian Empire was consolidated by the wisdom, the enterprise, and the conquests of Peter the Great, the Russians cast longing eyes on Constantinople as the prize most precious and most coveted in their sight. From Constantinople, the capital of the Greek Empire when the Turks were a wandering and unknown Tartar tribe in the northern part of Asia, had come the religion that was embraced by the ancient Tsars and the Slavonic races which they ruled. To this Greek form of Christianity the Russians were devotedly attached. They were semi-barbarians and yet bigoted Christians. In the course of centuries their priests came to possess immense power, social and political, as well as ecclesiastical. The Patriarch of Moscow was the second personage of the empire and the third dignitary in the Greek church. Religious forms and dogmas bound the Russians with the Greek population of the Turkish Empire in the strongest ties of sympathy and interest, even when that empire was in the height of its power. To get possession of those principalities under Turkish dominion in which the Greek faith was the prevailing religion had been the ambition of all the Tsars who reigned either at Moscow or at St. Petersburg. They aimed at a protectorate over the Christian subjects of the port in Eastern Europe, and the city where reigned the first Christian emperor of the old Roman world was not only sacred in their eyes, it had a religious prestige next to that of Jerusalem, but was looked upon as their future and certain possession to be obtained, however, only by bitter and sanguinary wars. Turkey, in a religious point of view, was the certain and inflexible enemy of Russia, so handed down in all the traditions and teachings of centuries. To erect again on the lofty dome of St. Sophia the cross, which had been torn down by Mohammedan infidels, was probably one of the strongest desires of the Russian nation and this desire was shared in a still stronger degree by all the russian monarchs from the time of peter the great most of whom were zealous defenders of what they called the orthodox faith they remind us of the kings of the middle ages in the interest they took in ecclesiastical affairs in their gorgeous religious ceremonials and in their magnificent churches which it was their pride to build alexander i was in his way one of the most religious monarchs who ever swayed a scepter more like an ancient Jewish king than a modern political sovereign. But there was another powerful reason why the Russian czars cast their wistful glance on the old capital of the Greek emperors, and resolved sooner or later to add it to their dominions, already stretching far into the east. And this was to get possession of the countries which bordered on the Black Sea, in order to have access to the Mediterranean. They wanted a port for the southern provinces of their empire, St. Petersburg was not sufficient, since the Neva was frozen in the winter, but Poland, a powerful kingdom in the 17th century, stood in their way, and beyond Poland were the Ukraine Cossacks and the Tartars of the Crimea. These nations it was necessary to conquer before the Muscovite banners could float on the strongholds which controlled the Euxine. It was not until after a long succession of wars that Peter the Great succeeded by the capture of Azov, in gaining a temporary footing on the Euxine, lost by the Battle of Pruth, when the Russians were surrounded by the Turks. The reconquest of Azov was left to Peter's successors, 
but the cossacks and tartars barred the way to the yuxine and to constantinople it was not until the time of catherine the second that the russian army succeeded in gaining a firm footing on the yuxine by the conquest of the crimea which then belonged to turkey and was called crim tartary the treaties of seventeen seventy four and seventeen ninety two gave to the russians the privilege of navigating the black sea and indirectly placed under protectorate of russia the territories of moldavia and wallachia provinces of turkey called the danubian principalities whose inhabitants were chiefly of the greek faith thus was russia aggrandized during the reign of catherine the second who not only added the crimea to her dominions an achievement to which peter the great aspired in vain but dismembered poland and invaded persia with her armies greece rumelia thessaly macedonia montenegro and the islands of the archipelago swarmed with her emissaries who preached rebellion against the hateful crescent and promised russian support russian money and russian arms these promises however were not realized being opposed by austria then virtually ruled by prince kaunitz who would not consent to the partition of poland without the abandonment of the ambitious projects of catherine incited by prince potemkin the most influential of her advisers and favorites she had to renounce all ideas of driving the turks out of turkey and founding a greek empire ruled over by a russian grand duke she was forced also to abandon her greek and slavonic allies and pledge herself to maintain the independence of wallachia and moldavia eight years later in seventeen eighty three the tartars lost their last foothold in the crimea by means of a friendly alliance between catherine and the austrian emperor joseph the second the effect of which was to make the russians the masters of the black sea catherine the second of german extraction is generally regarded as the ablest female sovereign who has reigned since semiramis with the exception perhaps of maria theresa of germany and elizabeth of england but she was infinitely below these princesses in moral worth indeed she was stained by the grossest immoralities that can degrade a woman she died in seventeen ninety six and her son paul succeeded her a prince whom his imperial mother had excluded from all active participation in the government of the empire because of his mental imbecility or partial insanity a conspiracy naturally was formed against him in such unsettled times it was at the height of napoleon's victorious career resulting in his assassination and his son alexander i reigned in his stead alexander was twenty-four when in eighteen o one he became the autocrat of all the russias his reign is familiar to all the readers of the wars of napoleon during which russia settled down as one of the great powers at the congress of vienna in eighteen fourteen the duchy of warsaw comprising four-fifths of the ancient kingdom of poland was assigned to russia during fifty years russia had been gaining possession of new territory of the crimea in seventeen eighty three of georgia in seventeen eighty five of bessarabia and a part of moldavia in eighteen twelve alexander added to the empire several of the tribes of the caucasus finland and large territories ceded by persia after the fall of napoleon alexander did little to increase the boundaries of his empire confining himself with austria and prussia to the suppression of revolutionary principles in europe the weakening of turkey and the extension of russian influence in persia in the internal government of his empire he introduced many salutary changes especially in the early part of his reign but after napoleon's final defeat his views gradually changed the burdens of absolute government disappointments 
the alienation of friends and the bitter experiences which all sovereigns must learn soured his temper which was naturally amiable and made him a prey to terror and despondency no longer was he the frank generous chivalrous and magnanimous prince who had called out general admiration but a disappointed suspicious terrified and prematurely old man flying from one part of his dominions to another as if to avoid the assassin's dagger he died in eighteen twenty five and was succeeded by his brother the grand duke nicholas the throne on the principles of legitimacy properly belonged to his elder brother the grand duke constantine whether this prince shrank from the burdens of governing a vast empire or felt an incapacity for its duties or preferred the post he occupied as viceroy of poland or the pleasures of domestic life with a wife to whom he was devoted it is not clear it is only certain that he had in the lifetime of the late emperor voluntarily renounced his claim to the throne and alexander had left a will appointing nicholas as his successor nicholas had scarcely been crowned eighteen twenty six when war broke out between russia and persia and this was followed by war with turkey consequent upon the greek revolution silistria a great fortress in bulgaria fell into the hands of the russians who pushed their way across the balkan mountains and occupied adrianople in the meantime general paskevitz followed up his brilliant successes in the asiatic provinces of the sultan's dominions by the capture of Isurium and advanced to trebizond the peace of adrianople in september eighteen twenty nine checked his farther advances this famous treaty secured to the russians extensive territories on the black sea together with its navigation by russian vessels and the free passage of russian ships through the dardanelles and bosphorus to the mediterranean in addition a large war indemnity was granted by turkey and the occupancy of moldavia wallachia and silistria until the indemnity should be paid moreover it was agreed that the hospodars of the principalities should be elected for life to rule without molestation from the port upon paying a trilling tribute a still greater advantage was gained by russia in the surrender by turkey of everything on the left bank of the danube cities fortresses and lands all with the view to their future annexation to russia the territory ceded to russia by the peace of adrianople included the caucasus a mountainous region inhabited by several independent races among which were the circassians who acknowledged allegiance neither to turkey nor russia nicholas at first attempted to gain over the chieftains of these different nations or tribes by bribes pensions decorations and military appointments he finally was obliged to resort to arms but without complete success such in brief were the acquisitions of russia during the reign of nicholas down to the time of the crimean war which made him perhaps the most powerful sovereign in the world as czar of all the russians there were no restraints on his will in his own dominions and it was only as he was held in check by the different governments of europe jealous of his encroachments that he was reminded that he was not omnipotent for fifteen years after his accession to the throne nicholas had the respect of europe he was moral in his domestic relations fond of his family religious in his turn of mind bordering on superstition a zealot in his defense of the greek church scrupulous in the performance of his duties and a man of his word the duke of wellington was his admiration a model for a sovereign to imitate nicholas was not so generous and impulsive as his brother alexander but more reliable in his personal appearance he made a fine impression 
over six feet in height, with a frank and open countenance, but not expressive of intellectual acumen. His will, however, was inflexible, and his anger was terrible. His passionate temper, which gave way to bursts of wrath, was not improved by his experiences. As time advanced, he withdrew more and more within himself, and grew fitful and jealous, disinclined to seek advice, and distrustful of his counsellors. And we can scarcely wonder at this result when we consider his absolute power and unfettered will. Few have been the kings and emperors who resembled Marcus Aurelius, who was not only master of the world, but master of himself. Few indeed have been the despots who have refrained from acts of cruelty, or who have uniformly been governed by reason. Even in private life, very successful men have an imperious air, as if they were accustomed to submission and deference. But a monarch of Russia, how can he be otherwise than despotic and self-conscious? Everybody he sees, every influence to which he is subjected, tends to swell his egotism. What changes of character marked Saul, David, and Solomon? So of Nicholas, as of the ancient Caesars. With the advance of years and experience, his impatience grew under opposition, and his rage under defeat. No man yet has lived, however favored, that could always have his way. He has to yield to circumstances. Not only to those great ones which he may own to have been determined by divine providence, but also to those unforeseen impediments which come from his humblest instruments. He cannot prevent deceit, hypocrisy, and treachery on the part of officials any easier than one can keep servants from lying and cheating. Who is not in the power, more or less, of those who are compelled to serve? And when an absolute monarch discovers that he has been led into mistakes by treacherous or weak advisers, how natural that his temper should be spoiled. Thus was Nicholas in the latter years of his reign. He was thwarted by foreign powers, and deceived by his own instruments of despotic rule. He found himself only a man, and like other men. He became suspicious, bitter, and cruel. His pride was wounded by defeat and opposition from least expected quarters. He found his burdens intolerable to bear. His cares interfered with what were once his pleasures. The dreadful load of public affairs, which he could not shake off, weighed down his soul with anxiety and sorrow. He realized, more than most monarchs, the truth of one of Shakespeare's incomparable utterances. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. The mistakes and disappointments of the Crimean War finally broke his heart, and he, armed with more power than any one man in the world, died with a consciousness of a great defeat. It would be interesting to show how seldom the great rulers of this world have had an unchecked career to the close of their lives. Most of them have had to ruminate on unexpected falls, like Napoleon, Louis-Philippe, Metternich, Gladstone, Bismarck, or on unattained objects of ambition, like the great statesmen who have aspired to be presidents of the United States. Nicholas thought that the capital of the sick man was, like ripe fruit, ready to fall into his hands. After one hundred years of war, Russia discovered that this prize was no nearer her grasp. Nicholas, at the head of a million of disciplined troops, was defeated, while his antagonist, the sick man, could scarcely muster a fifth part of the number, and yet survived to plague his thwarted will. The obstacles to the conquest of Constantinople by Russia are, after all, very great. There are only three ways by which a Russian general can gain this coveted object of desire. The one which seems the easiest is to advance by sea from Sebastopol, 
through the Black Sea to the Bosphorus with a powerful fleet. But Turkey has or had a fleet of equal size, while her allies, England and France, can sweep with ease from the Black Sea any fleet which Russia can possibly collect. The ordinary course of Russian troops has been to cross the Pruth, which separates Russia from Moldavia, and advance through the Danubian provinces to the Balkans, dividing Bulgaria from Turkey in Europe. Once the Russian army succeeded, amid innumerable difficulties, in conquering all the fortresses in the way, like Silistria, Varna, and Shumla, in penetrating the mountain passes of the Balkans, and making their way to Adrianople. But they were so demoralized, or weakened and broken, by disasters and privations, that they could get no farther than Adrianople with safety, and their retreat was a necessity. And had the Balkan passes been properly defended, as they easily could have been, even a Napoleon could not have penetrated through them with two hundred thousand men, or any army which the Russians could possibly have brought there. The third way open to the Russians in their advance to Constantinople is to march the whole extent of the northern shores of the Black Sea, and then cross the Caucasian range to the south, and advance around through Turkey in Asia, its entire width from east to west, amid a hostile and fanatical population ready to die for their faith and country. A way so beset with difficulties, and attended with such vast expense, that success would be almost impossible, even with no other foes than Turks. The Emperor Nicholas was by nature stern and unrelenting. He had been merciless in his treatment of the Poles. When he was friendly, his frankness had an irresistible charm. During his twenty-seven years on the throne he had both reigned and governed. However, he was military, without being warlike. With no talents for generalship, he bestowed almost incredible attention upon the discipline of his armies. He oppressively drilled his soldiers, without knowledge of tactics, and still less of strategy. Half his time was spent in inspecting his armies. When, in 1828, he invaded Turkey, his organizations broke down under an extended line of operations. For a long time thereafter he suffered the port to live in repose, not being ready to destroy it, waiting for his opportunity. When the Pasha of Egypt revolted from the Sultan and his son Ibrahim seriously threatened the dismemberment of Turkey, England and France interfered in behalf of Turkey, and in 1840 a convention in London placed Turkey under the common safeguard of the five great powers—England, France, Prussia, Austria, and Russia—instead of the protectorate exercised by Russia alone. After the fall of Hungary, a number of civil and military leaders took refuge in Turkey, and Russia and Austria demanded the expulsion of the refugees, which was preemptorily refused by the Sultan. In consequence, Russia suspended all diplomatic intercourse with Turkey, and sought a pretext for war. In 1844 the Tsar visited England, doubtless with the purpose of winning over Lord Aberdeen, then Foreign Secretary, and the Duke of Wellington on the ground that Turkey was in a state of hopeless decrepitude, and must ultimately fall into his hands. In this event he was willing that England, as a reward for her neutrality, should take possession of Egypt. It is thus probable that the Emperor Nicholas, after the failure of his armies to reach Constantinople through the Danubian provinces and across the Balkans, meditated, after twenty years of rest and recuperation, the invasion of Constantinople by his fleet, which then controlled the Black Sea. But he reckoned without his host. He was deceived by the pacific attitude of England, then ruled by the cabinet of Lord Aberdeen, who absolutely detested war. 
the premier was almost a fanatic in his peace principles and was on the most friendly terms with nicholas and his ministers the czar could not be made to believe that england under the administration of lord aberdeen would interfere with his favorite and deeply meditated schemes of conquest he saw no obstacles except from the turks themselves timid and stricken with fears so he strongly fortified sebastopol and made it impregnable by the sea and quietly gathered in its harbor an immense fleet with which the turkish armaments could not compare the turkish naval power had never recovered from the disaster which followed the battle of navarino when their fleet was annihilated with a crippled naval power and decline in military strength with defeated armies and an empty purse it seemed to the czar that turkey was crushed in spirit and constantinople defenseless and that impression was strengthened by the representation of his ambassador at the port prince metchnikoff who almost openly insulted the sultan by his arrogance assumptions and threats but a very remarkable man happened at that time to reside at constantinople as the ambassador of england one in whom the turkish government had great confidence and who exercised great influence over it this man was sir stratford canning a cousin of the great canning who in eighteen fifty two was made vicomte with the title lord stratford de redcliffe he was one of the ablest diplomatists then living or that england had ever produced and all his sympathies were on the side of turkey menstikoff was no match for the astute englishman who for some time controlled the turkish government and who baffled all the schemes of nicholas england much as she desired the peace of europe and much as lord aberdeen detested war had no intention of allowing the sick man to fall into the hands of russia and through her ambassador at constantinople gave encouragement to turkey to resist the all-powerful russia with the secret promise of english protection and as lord stratford distrusted and disliked russia having since eighteen twenty four been personally engaged in eastern diplomacy and familiar with russian designs he very zealously and with great ability fought the diplomatic battles of turkey and inspired the port with confidence in the event of war it was by his dexterous negotiations that england was gradually drawn into a warlike attitude against russia in spite of the resolutions of the english premier to maintain peace at any cost in the meantime the english people after their long peace of nearly forty years were becoming restless in view of the encroachments of russia and were in favor of vigorous measures even if they should lead to war the generation had passed away that remembered waterloo so that public opinion was decidedly warlike and goaded on the ministry to measures which materially conflicted with lord aberdeen's peace principles the idea of war with russia became popular partly from jealousy of a warlike empire that aspired to the possession of constantinople and partly from the english love of war itself with its excitements after the dullness and inaction of a long period of peace and prosperity in eighteen fifty three england found herself drifting into war to the alarm and disgust of aberdeen and gladstone to the joy of the people and the satisfaction of palmerston and a majority of the cabinet the third party to this crimean contest was france then ruled by louis napoleon who had lately become head of the state by a series of political usurpations and crimes that must ever be a stain on his fame yet he did not feel secure on his throne the ancient nobles the intellect of the country and the parliamentary leaders were against him they stood aloof from his government regarding him as a traitor and a robber who by cunning and slaughter had stolen the crown he was supposed to be a man of inferior intellect whose chief merit was the ability to conceal his thoughts and hold his tongue 
and whose power rested on the army, the allegiance of which he had seduced by bribes and promises. Feeling the precariousness of his situation and the instability of the people he had deceived with the usual Napoleonic lies, which he called ideas, he looked about for something to divert their minds, some scheme by which he could gain eclat, and the difficulties between Russia and Turkey furnished him the occasion he desired. He determined to employ his army in aid of Turkey. It would be difficult to show what gain would result to France, for France did not want additional territory in the East. But a war would be popular, and Napoleon wanted popularity. Moreover, an alliance with England, offensive and defensive, to check Russian encroachments, would strengthen his own position, social as well as political. He needed friends. It was his aim to enter the family of European monarchs, to be on a good footing with them, to be one of them, as a legitimate sovereign. The English alliance might bring Victoria herself to Paris as his guest. The former prisoner of Ham, whom everybody laughed at as a visionary or despised as an adventurer, would, by an alliance with England, become the equal of Queen Victoria, and with infinitely greater power. She was a mere figurehead in her government, to act as her ministers directed. He, on the other hand, had France at his feet, and dictated to his ministers what they should do. The parties then in the Crimean War were Russia, seeking to crush Turkey, with France and England coming to the rescue, ostensibly to preserve the balance of power in Europe. End of section 8